generous God who meets all of our needs according to your riches and glory. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for gathering us together here in this place. Thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your word, to proclaim your goodness, and to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Help us to open our hearts. Please open our eyes. Heal us today. Lead us deeper into the sweetness of your embrace. We love you. Amen. So last week, we learned about the rich young ruler who went away sad after Jesus suggested that he sell all his possessions, give his money to the poor, and follow after him. And immediately after this, Peter makes a rather clever connection between what the rich man failed to do and what he and the other disciples had already done. Then Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So it would stand to reason that the disciples are feeling pretty good about their location in the kingdom of heaven. The rich guy is first now, but he's going to be last. And the disciples who have voluntarily sacrificed so much are the last who will eventually be first. We can imagine that the disciples start to nurse fantasies of what it will be like when they have all the power. But Matthew moves on in his narrative. According to him, Jesus tells another esoteric parable. Basically, in this parable, God is likened to a lord of a particular household who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. To pause really quick, the metaphor of God as the owner and cultivator of a vineyard is not new to Matthew or to the New Testament. We also find this picture in the Hebrew Bible, and Isaiah 5 is a great example. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it, says God? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. So back to the parable. The landowner, i.e. God, goes out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in the vineyard. He finds workers and he comes to an agreement with them concerning the wages that he will pay them at the end of the day for their work. They get to work early in the morning. And then at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., and at 5 p.m., he goes out and he finds other men standing in the marketplace without jobs. And he asks them why they don't have work. And they explain that no one's hired them. We should remember that these guys are day laborers. If they don't work, they and their families literally do not eat. These guys are getting more and more desperate throughout the day. And the Lord just keeps going out and looking for these guys. Is it that the Lord failed to find enough people in the morning to do the work that he needed done? Or is he just looking for people who need jobs? So he arranges to pay these guys whatever is right or just. Imagine if you're moving and you hire day laborers to help you and you arrange to pay them whatever you feel is right after they have completed their work. Is it pure desperation that would get someone to agree to something like this? In any case, at the end of the day, the Lord tells his steward to pay everybody, but to start with the last and to end with the first. 
He pays those who have worked for one hour, three hours, six hours, and nine hours a full day's wage, which is a denarius. When he gets to the first people that he hired, he pays them the same amount, one denarius. The people who are hired throughout the day seem to have no complaints, but the workers who are hired first begin to murmur against the Lord. They complain, those who are hired first, or, or last, I mean, worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. And that's a long day. That's like a 12-hour day. But the Lord replies to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't we agree that I would pay you a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. Then after telling this parable, Jesus takes his disciples aside privately and gives them another cryptic prophecy about his death and resurrection. This is his third prophecy about his death. Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd are moving toward Jerusalem, and they're almost there. So this time that Jesus prophesies about his death, he gives much more detail. But the disciples, they haven't moved on from thinking about their glorious thrones. They might be imagining what kind of crown they're going to be wearing. How many people do they get to rule over? Which ones get to have the biggest throne? Who gets to sit closest to Jesus, the victorious Son of Man? So James and John and their mom approach Jesus after he's finally done talking about all this other stuff. And James and John's mom says to Jesus, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus denies the request. His only explanation, at least initially, is that this is just something that he's not able to grant. But the other disciples, they get very angry with James and John. They seem to be much more bent out of shape than even Jesus. Presumably, they are angry not so much because of James and John's obvious insensitivity and obtuseness. I mean, let's remember that Jesus just predicted that he will soon be mocked, beaten, and crucified. So it isn't that the disciples are upset on Jesus' behalf, but because they have been outmaneuvered by James and John. So Jesus begins to nuance his throne language just a little bit. His disciples have clearly gotten stuck there. So earlier Jesus had said, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But now, Jesus explains, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now we seem to have two very different pictures of the Son of Man. Consequently, we have two very different pictures of the fate of his followers. Earlier, the Son of Man would be seated on the throne of his glory, and this harkens back to Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Then all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, that's one picture of Jesus' role within the kingdom of, of, of God. And if you are followers of the Son of Man, it stands to reason that you get thrones. And it might be reasonable to wonder if you have a throne on his right or a throne on his left. Because how wonderful it would be to reign next to King Jesus. Well, then Jesus seems to turn this vision inside out and upside down. Now, suddenly, the Son of Man is described this way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This vision may harken back to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. At the end of the chapter, God says, My servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. If we fast forward a bit in Matthew's narrative to chapter 27, verse 38, Matthew tells us this. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. So now we have a second vision of the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah. His disciples have abandoned him, and the ones who have managed to take the positions by his side, one on his right and one on his left, are thieves hanging on crosses. How awful it would be to hang next to Jesus, the convict. So, what is it? Who is Jesus, the man on the throne or the man on the cross? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Can we look forward to thrones or crosses? Well, there's, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that Jesus does get his throne, but the bad news is that he gets a cross first. So Jesus is both the first and the last, but the last came first. As followers of Jesus, our behavior and our character follows after Jesus' behavior and character. In a similar way, but a much more pure way, Jesus' behavior and character is a reflection of God's character and behavior. And this leads us back to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It turns out that the kingdom of God has a lot to do with God. Our parable is particularly interesting because it tells us what the kingdom of God is like by telling us what God is like. And it tells us what God is like by telling us how God behaves. The parable about the laborers in the vineyard tells a story about how God behaves, and it tells a story about how people respond to God's active presence. In the parable, God's activity is good, and God's behavior is extremely and perhaps even excessively generous. There are some who respond to the display of God's goodness with resentment, sour faces, and an evil eye. Basically, they are envious and angry. They are offended at God's lack of fairness. Apparently, God's sense of justice is different than theirs and perhaps different than ours as humans. As one of my friends pointed out, even kids understand fairness. So God's justice looks like excessive generosity and it offends our sensibilities. It also turns out that Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection have a lot to do with God. 
When Jesus first preached the gospel, he proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So the good news that Jesus proclaimed was that God was here. God was actively present. And in response to God's activity, people should repent and believe. So Jesus' story is a retelling of God's story with us, with humans. Jesus' story tells us about how God behaves, and it tells a story about how people respond to God's active presence in the world. Earlier, I noted that Yahweh loved Israel, his vineyard. He cared for her and he cultivated her. He desired for her to become fruitful. He wanted her to grow good grapes, but she grew sour grapes instead. Yahweh looked for justice, but instead he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but instead he heard a cry for help. And in response to the cries for help, Yahweh even sent his son, Jesus, to his people. And in response to God's generosity, the people plotted to kill Jesus. In Isaiah 65, we hear Yahweh's lament about his people in his own words. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross proclaimed out loud for all peoples, for all places, for every single person here, God's heart. Jesus' cross is God's perpetual invitation to receive God's generosity, to drown in the outpouring of God's love, and to dive into the ocean of God's embrace. And in that ocean of God's love and generosity, we find that we have all that we need, just like all the workers who labored in the vineyard. We are invited to stop striving for more than our daily bread. We people love to store up provisions just in case. We waste so much of our lives on the pursuit of security in a world of scarcity. But our generous God and Father spreads out his hands all day long and invites us to receive his generosity. God's invitation to us is a reality, and there is a lot at stake in that reality. Our response determines our fate. The first thing that we must understand is that God has not rescinded his invitation. God has not rescinded his invitation. Amen. Thank you. God says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, like the Lord of the vineyard who just kept going back to the marketplace all day long and looking for workers. God keeps stretching his hands out to us all day long. The cross is God's perpetual invitation to embrace. God is still today spreading out his hands to us regardless of our response to the cross. One of the reasons that I love Mountainside is because everyone here is invited to the table regardless of your current response to the cross. If you find yourself scratching your head, that's great because the cross is a mystery that even Christian orthodoxy hasn't solved. 
If you find yourself skeptical, that's only reasonable. The cross doesn't make any sense. And it's certainly the farthest thing away from fair. If in response to the cross you find yourself making a grumpy face, if you find yourself offended, if you find yourself even repulsed, thanks for being honest, seriously. And thanks for being here. It might be helpful to think about what about this place is drawing you here, but you have all the time you need to figure it out. Jesus poured out his life even to death for all of us here. Whether we believe it or not, whether we are offended or not, whether we can begin to understand it or not. The invitation is there as, con as consistently and as stable as the rising and the setting of the sun. So with that said, God's generosity is the same for us all, but our responses aren't the same. And our experience of God's generosity isn't the same. So what's at stake in our response? I think it's healing. There's one more really short story in this chapter that we haven't gotten to yet, and it's a great place to land. Matthew tells us, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them, be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So one way to respond to God's generosity is with an evil eye, to murmur against God and to reject God. But another way to respond is to figure out that there's something wrong with our eyes. Our vision, our perception is messed up. We are blind. God's perception is not our perception. God's justice is not our justice. And our evil eyes have led to bloodshed and distress. The best we can do is to cry out to God wherever we stand. Or perhaps we have become victims of other people's injustice. The point is that wherever we are, we need some kind of healing. Now, it could be physical healing that you need, our needs before God aren't always all about the ways that we struggle to love each other. We just struggle with being human because we're all vulnerable, period. That's our human condition, vulnerability. And all of us have been wounded. All of us have been sick. All of us have been guilty. All of us have been lonely. All of us have something today that we need, some way in which we need God to reach out to us where we stand. All of us have something that is out of our control that we just cannot fix on our own. The real problem of being human is that we all have to carry some kind of cross. We all suffer. So we can suffer while rejecting God's generosity, or we can receive God's generosity and suffer with Christ. That's pretty much it. And it's kind of ironic to think about whether or not we are willing to suffer on behalf of Christ, whether we will follow Christ to the cross, because Jesus' cross was Jesus' willingness to suffer in solidarity with us. And the cross was not the end of the story for Jesus. Suffering isn't the end of the story of our human condition. Jesus died, <clears throat> sorry, Jesus died and rose again. Jesus defeated our biggest enemies, 
evil, sin, and even death. Yes, if we follow Jesus, we still suffer. But we also have real freedom. So there's real healing in Jesus. There's real provision in the kingdom of heaven. And even though there is suffering, there is abundant life when you go deeper into God. Abundant life now and eternal life later. What makes it abundant now, what makes the kingdom of heaven life-giving is God's own behavior toward us. God is good. God is generous. The more we experience God's goodness, the more our eyes are opened. The more we follow Jesus deeper and deeper into life, the greater and greater intimacy we experience with our God, who is relentless in relationship, extravagant and excessive in generosity, unlimited and inexhaustible in love, and that's real life. When we come to the table today, let's come crying out like the blind men. Let's ask God to open our eyes, to heal us, to feed us with God's generosity, and to overwhelm us with the outpouring of his love.